Welcome to the Disrupt Yourself podcast. I'm Whitney Johnson. I'm an author, a speaker, and I write frequently about disruption for LinkedIn and the Harvard Business Review. In my book, Disrupt Yourself, I set forth a framework for putting disruptive innovation to work. Because I can't get enough of these ideas, I am continually looking for opportunities to explore them in greater depth. My guest is Asi Barak. He's a video game developer and author who pioneered the world of social gaming when he created Peacemaker, a video game that aims to not only explain the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but actually solve it. As chairman of Games for Change, he wants to see video games do a lot more than provide entertainment. He wants to use them to change the world. Aussie lives for disruption. While growing up in Israel, he chose to study Arabic. After his service in the Israeli military, he didn't follow his friends into business. He went to art school to make video games. Asi Barak's new book is Power Play, How Video Games Can Save the World. What is the most disruptive thing you did as a child? I mean, I think that probably we'll go back to drawing because uh, I was... Uh, I was drawing to a level that, you know, the kindergarten teacher was waiting for my parents, you know, at the gate of the kindergarten just to show them, you know, when, when kids were cir- were doing circles and, you know, car- kind of, you know, nothing nothing meaningful, I was actually making characters. And, um, and then I went on to do uh, um, kind of conflict drawings and war drawings and... Um, there was one point that it became a bit embarrassing when uh, we visited uh, a, a family in an Arab village. They were friends with my father, and I actually drew, drew something very, very provocative and political. And they were kind of, you know, they did expect it from a kid. How old were you? I think probably six at that time. Six years old. Yeah. Writing or drawing something very provocative yeah. <laughs> about about the about the conflict, the Arab-Israeli conflict, yeah. and you know they they thought they're going to look at the drawing of trees and uh, houses or something. Can you describe for us what it looked like? I mean, like? it was it was basically <laughs> an encounter between an an Arab uh, militant and a soldier, and they were very surprised. It was embarrassing because it kind of you know put tension in the air. Uh, but uh, but that was the that was the drawing. That was pretty disruptive. Yeah. <laughs> I've read your book Power Play, how video games change the world. It was fascinating. Thank you. Um, I have to say the best part of the story was your story. I I don't know if you're familiar with the book Ender's Game. Yeah, of course. I that's one of my favorite books, and I felt like I was reading the story of a real life Ender. Will you share with me and with our listeners some of your story? I, I, I think the, the tipping point, the point that everything changed was when I came to the U.S., actually. Uh, before that, I had, I, I've done things, um, you know, that tied me to tech or uh, marketing. But when I came to the U.S., uh, for whatever reason, you know, looking back, I didn't plan to stay here or anything. I came to Carnegie Mellon to this special program, and I pitched my own project which was a disruption because most of the other kids were doing um, making projects around 
things that were giving to them. You know, Disney is coming in or, you know, a big brand uh, sponsoring a project and the students, you know, feel very lucky to do that. The other thing, I was 10 years older than everyone else. I came after the army service. I was a captain in the Israeli uh, uh, Defense Forces. And so I had much more uh, experience and, and leadership, I guess. So I pitched my own project. And what I uh, uh, suggested I'll do is a video game around the Palestinian, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, which drew a lot from my background living in Israel, but also my army service and understanding of different perspectives. I was in intelligence, so a lot of what I've done was, was gamey in a way. You know, I tried to decipher what the other side is trying to do, and, and um, at times it was really puzzle-solving, you know, really cracking uh, big uh, problems that had uh, life and death consequences for soldiers in the field. And I took all of that and I put it into the speech and the faculty at the beginning thought it's the craziest idea ever, but at the end they approved it. It took some time, and we have to remember it's 2004. So video games have even worse perception than today, and mostly they're played by teenagers on consoles, and kind of that image of the teenager in the basement is pretty accurate in 2004. And I'm coming with this idea not only to do a real-world game, but it's also going to be about solving the conflict. You had this epiphany, and I, there's something that you wrote in the book that I thought was very, very powerful. It's on page 12, and I would love it if you would read it. Okay, so it's it's basically uh, written about me in third person, but mm -hmm. it's basically me, right? Mm -hmm. So ultimately, I saw an opportunity. Imagine working on an art form that most people don't yet fully appreciate, but that you know will grow into something incredible one day. A medium that many people consider shallow or violent, but whose potential to teach and transform is in fact limitless. That to me is, it's like your mission statement, right? Absolutely, and, yeah. and um, you know, even before I, came, I started studying uh, that master's degree, that's the, you know, kind of the burden or the mission or the, this mindset that I came with, you know, mm -hmm. that was the idea. And, you know, choosing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was, was basically about how far can we go? Mm -hmm. You know, can we take the most serious, arguably the most serious complex problem of our age and put it into a video game? Like the most serious thing in the medium that most people take is very unserious. You know, people think it's escapism. I'm going to immerse you in the conflict. People think it's violent and all about war. I'm going to make a peace game. So it was completely counterintuitive to everything that games were, were in people's minds uh, standing for. Which goes to a really important question, because this is a medium that the gaming community is it's it's celebrated, it's it's passionate, like you said, about escape. And so now you're trying to take on this intractable problem. Did you have people say to you, why don't you aim a little lower? And why are you even doing this? All the time. I mean, the, the amount of times I heard, you know, that it's not feasible, that it's not possible, that it's you know, out of scope, definitely for a student project that will never succeed, that, uh, 
why why even doing it why uh, you know why with video games I mean so much and you know some of it goes till this day you know mm-hmm. still with the stuff we're doing at games for change but you know with as with everything that you disrupt time helps so mm. it's like an evolution so I hear it less and less but back then in 2004 super strong opposition and um, I mean the beauty of it in my mind is that when you succeed or when you break through it actually helps you Because when you do something counterintuitive, mm-hmm. many people are interested in it. And I think the press was a major power in that because for them it was an, an amazing story to tell. Back then, you know, that video games are what, what people think they are. And then a group of students at Carnegie Mellon is trying to solve the peace process in the Middle East. Walk me through. What would happen if you and I were playing the game? Um, what who would I be? Who would you be and and what would we do? So it's it's uh, the way it was designed back then is a one player game. So mm-hmm. you know we we would play one of the perspectives. We will need to choose select a, a position between the Israeli Prime Minister or the Palestinian president. But what we're going to do is really take very high level strategical decisions around the situation. Now, Um, everything we'll see in the game uh, there is a map that is you know a 3d map but everything else we're going to see is is real footage that we license from Reuters mm. so talking about disruption we came to Reuters they didn't even know how to license footage to a video game they, mm-hmm. they never had this problem to to you know to think about so you see real videos and real images and it's you know some of them are very intense and you need to respond to And uh, every decision you make uh, get consequences but also um, you see what every stakeholder is feeling about you at any time so it's like an ability to look at different groups and leaders and every action that you do changes the meters and their level of approval of you and it's very hard to satisfy everybody so very soon you get into this place where you You, you have all this power as a leader but you feel very limited because you know opposition is fighting you and people uh, you know interpret you in in ways that you didn't necessarily intend to you know that they, they look at what you do and and they they misunderstand your mm-hmm. intentions the psychological complexity as I'm listening to you talk about this is staggering I'm also feeling this sense of oh <gasps> Because like you're getting this automatic feedback of every move that you make of people you know boo yeah. yay um, some pop some people got very stressed you know when mm-hmm. they played I mean stressed in a in, in a positive engaging way but you know they they started to feel that every action they take has you know serious consequences and um, you know we we kept hearing this is this is interesting because you It wasn't necessarily our goal mm-hmm. you know if you ask me before you know what people will get from the game people started coming back to us with you know a similar statement quote that said you know I learned by playing peacemaker your game about the Middle East more than I learned by watching the news for months and I think that uh, what what that showed me is how strong a video game uh, is in connecting the dots for people mm-hmm. so you You talked about this action feedback thing it's it's the key to learning mm-hmm. a complex situation because you make a choice you have the agency 
Then you get the feedback. You take another action. It's very different than watch the news in a passive way, mm-hmm. isolated events that it's very hard to make kind of the big picture out mm-hmm. of them. I want to go back to your background for just a moment. You, because it's your background, it probably seems sort of commonplace, but it isn't to me. Um, so you grew up in Israel, in yes. Tel Aviv, is that right? Mm-hmm. And you loved to draw. You were an artist um, and were using your art to capture the world around you. Now, when you were in high school, you started studying a language that surprised people. What was yeah. that language? So that was, that was kind of a mini disruption that uh, everyone expected. I mean, I was very uh, strong in, <laughs> in like, uh, you know, very good uh, student and, and um, very good grades. Everybody expected me to go to, uh, you know, to study physics, mm-hmm. mathematics, uh, chemistry, and I chose Arabic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was also not regarded. It was not respected as a, as a choice. And I chose that, and uh, it led it led to my army service in the intelligence later. And it's a language that I, I learned for years and years, and it was all about, you know, learning the language of of your neighbors, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you remember why you chose Arabic? Very hard for me to, you know, to un- understand why I made that choice. But, but you know, through my life, I made those uh, mm-hmm. kind of surprising choices. Another one was to go to art school. So... Even though I was drawing and all that, most of the people coming out of my unit mm-hmm. in the army went <laughs> went and became uh, uh, startup guys or uh, you know went to study law and went to uh, study you know business and uh, going to art school was completely outside. so you go from military <laughs> intelligence, yeah. the yeah. most macho thing you can do to Art school. Right. The, and also the most analytical thing, you know, mm-hmm. the, the army, the intelligence service was all about data and analytics and and brain. And, you know, I go and, and go to art school. Do you remember any conversations that you had with friends or colleagues that just were flabbergasted at your decision? Yeah, of course. Also with the Arabic. I mean, I remember with the Arabic one, you know, doing it in high school, I remember teachers coming to me and saying, you know, you're you're narrowing your choices. Mm. If you don't go and study chemistry or physics, you know, you won't be able to return to that later. I mean, you're hurting your future, all kinds of... Uh, and, and same with art school, you know, people s- telling me it's never going to be profitable mm. or, mm-hmm. you know, business or... Yeah, I mean, look, people... <laughs> I, I always have it that people don't necessarily look long term, and they and some are very very practical. Mm-hmm. You know, people that I speak with, and they and it's fine. It's a good perspective to have, but I'm I'm trying to most of the time go beyond that. Mm. Have you come across any gamers who have disapproved of how you're trying to disrupt the world's view of gaming to to use it not just for escape but to move the world forward in a positive way a lot i mean you'd be surprised uh, how easy it for me it is to convert people outside of gaming for them it's a very good story Mm -hmm. um and they get it on every level once once you know they have a chance to hear about it to gamers especially hardcore gamers that feel, um, you know, maybe threatened, maybe it's, um, 
it's changing something they love so much and don't think that you need to change. Uh, we get a lot of opposition and um, I mean it's less now but uh, one example is that uh, the game awards which is the Oscars of video games it happens every December uh, decide to put a games for change category and they decided to do it two years ago so that was a big milestone for us it's still one category but it was you know an acknowledgement and every time they announced the uh, nominees every year they You have to see what happens on social media. It's just such a backlash from gamers. And, you know, those games are not real games. And, you know, it's just they can't... Again, it's, it's, it's obviously a group, but for them it's really, you know, uh, challenging everything they know and love about what, you know, the, the blockbuster commercial mm-hmm. games they love to play. What do you do when you get that kind of backlash? Um, you know, I'm... I'm a, I'm trying to say something that I really believe in, you know, that it's not an expense of anything, you know. Uh, we have other media to learn from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the book actually starts with an introduction that I, I got, uh, I was lucky to get to interview my, one of my heroes, Art Spiegelman, about comic books. You know, that's another uh, equivalent. Uh, look, to look, look at the TVs, TV series, look at the uh, movies. The idea that an evolution of a medium makes it much more nuanced, uh, many more genres, uh, across ages, many developed tastes. I mean, the idea that uh, we'll stay with what we have now in video games is just unacceptable because it will become more diverse. It will become uh, something that will be 9 to 99. You know, and, and everybody will learn to appreciate. I mean, even the word gamers, for many years, I'm, I'm talking about how weird it is that we have a medium where we separate gamers from non-gamers. Hmm. You know, you don't have it with book readers or movie goers because everybody can appreciate a type of creation that is tailored to their taste. That's an interesting distinction. What do you think it's going to take for the largest video game companies to produce social games? So uh, in a way, it, it's starting to happen, okay? So that's the good news. I mean, it took us years, but um, you know, at the last uh, Games for Change Festival, Sid Meier, the amazing designer of Civilization, announced that they're going to make a Civilization, an EDU version. Um, Ubisoft, another very big uh, game publisher, one of the leading uh, in the world, uh, made a game called Valiant Hearts around uh, World War I. In many ways, it's an educational game. You know? mm-hmm. They did it as an entertainment piece, but it's definitely something that Games for Change would appreciate. Um, we, we had the other projects like uh, Zynga.org, you know, that Zynga started this .org project. A nonprofit uh, arm that uh, also funded us but did a lot of interesting things with charity um, there are other examples like electronic arts uh, starting game lab uh, which is a whole organization that takes commercial games and makes uh, versions of those for schools and other purposes mm-hmm. I think that these are just pioneering things and I think that To, to see it in a big way we'll need to have a commercial argument uh, in the sense that just like uh, if you look at uh, movies documentaries start to succeed in the in the theater mm-hmm. in a big way 
that attracted the attention of the big studios, I think we'll have the same here, that uh, something will succeed uh, in a way that is unquestionable in the market, that they will, they will need to go. So far, they're very risk averse. They want to create the same stuff that is proven to work. And, um, Which is very not disruptive, right? <laughs> no, and, and in a funny way, it's so it's so uh, the opposite because video games are known to be about sequels, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the reason they're about sequels is because it's so complex and tough to make a good game that you'll actually make the next one and it 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 will be better. Unlike in movies, mm-hmm. <laughs> you do build you do build on the technology mm-hmm. and you do build on. The feedback from players it's all interactive so the number two number three will be better so it's much easier to go that route mm-hmm. than to do something completely new that might be a huge failure mm-hmm. in your book you talk about a number of different games that are helping people change and uh, many of the stories caught my attention one in particular um, has to do with helping professional athletes and I'll, I'll tell you why um, our very first podcast episode I interviewed Michelle McKenna Doyle who is the CIO the chief uh, information officer at the NFL yes and so I was intrigued to read that uh, virtual reality is helping athletes and football players in particular both improve their game and to disrupt their sometimes bad behavior right. Tell me more about this. So uh, a lot of that work uh, uh, is being driven uh, by a, a lab in Stanford that is uh, run by uh, Jeremy Bellinson. And um, he's doing, by the way, a lot of experiments with virtual reality and, em- and empathy. So he, he also has that very for change, for good mm-hmm. aspect. But uh, very soon he saw how he can actually... work with athletes especially uh, quarterbacks in the NFL on improving their decision making time so we all know how crucial it is and how you know how short is the window that they they have to make a decision and uh, one of his uh, big projects showed that he can reduce response time from four seconds to three seconds and he works with the NFL as an organization the commissioner came to the lab and To see some of the VR demos um, I think we're only scratching the surface because this idea that you can rehearse in a very immersive environment what you do in real life is super powerful and uh, the idea that you can also try it from different perspectives so they also do some work with the NFL around uh, domestic violence and gender and you know trying to figure out how people can get you Um, empathy while playing another perspective so on the domestic violence they put the they put the the athlete in the position yeah, they of... might they might do that they put they put the athlete in in the opposite position or they'll do a narrative based scenario that mm-hmm. that has to do with it uh, again it's it's the closest we have now in virtual reality it's the closest we have to simulate reality mm-hmm. and the You know even Im- kind of Im- uh, integrate fantasy into it in a way that we can manipulate so um, again I think we're, it's only the beginning it's it's still crude mm-hmm. to if we compare it to what we will see in the future 
What's the most exciting thing you you personally have created to date? Um, very interesting. Um, it's tough to kind of have one uh, one baby, <laughs> but um, I think that uh, you know if I, I definitely. Uh, <laughs> you know, like the disruption and the innovation of Peacemaker or later when we did Half the Sky, which was a very ambitious project with Nicholas Christoph around women empowerment. Um, and we did mobile games in India and Kenya. That was a very interesting approach to go with, you know, uh, low-end devices, not the cutting-edge technology, but actually very, very basic devices to communities on the ground. So those were, were interesting projects, but... If I take a step back, I think the work it gains for change in general uh, over years was probably the most meaningful because you could really see the change. Mm -hmm. uh, you could really see over the years where you started and where it finished. You know, mm -hmm. it was a sustainable, uh, long-term effort that had a lot of uh, outcomes as a result. So you're saying the creation of Games for Change itself, the organization? Or... Yeah, and, and I didn't, I didn't start it. Mm -hmm. Start it. I joined um, after uh, there was a community there, but when I came, I would, I would say that the community was pretty sleepy, mm -hmm. very non-profity, and uh, not, not necessarily very large. And um, what I did, obviously not alone, but with a team and and my partners is trying to get it, first of all, to be more friendly to business, um, sexier. Mm -hmm. uh, again, if it's entertainment, then we have to look like entertainment. Right. And uh, it meant everything. It meant the brand. It meant the events. It meant the partnerships we did, uh, the quality of the games. That, that, you know, I remember when we came to Games for Change, um, there was no award show. Mm. They tried to do it once in, I don't know, five years, and that's it. And we said, the first thing we said we're going to do is an award show. And and they told us, you can't do an award show because there are not enough high-quality games. And we said, yeah, but it's a chicken-and-egg problem. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't do an award show, and if you don't invite innovation and, and quality, then people are not going to try hard, you know? So it was all about exposing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, a walk and it's amazing how every year that award show and the game submitted both in terms of quantity and quality uh, you saw the improvement mm. it was just like year after year of uh, trend a positive trend so 2017 will be what year for the for the award show it will be the 13th 13th yeah Maybe even 14. Mm. <laughs> um, close enough yeah and um <laughs> And yeah, it's it's going to be this time with virtual reality for change. League of Legends, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> what do we need to know? I, I I need to tell you first of all, my son, who's now twenty, for a time in his life, he was in the ninety seventh percentile in League of Legends. Wow. So I need you to help me persuade him that at some point he should be willing to put that on a college application. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, by the way, uh, it, I mean, we're kind of, um, you know, joking about it, but he could get a scholarship these days. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of places in the U.S. where esports uh, is not only acknowledged, it's promoted, and um, they give scholarships to professional uh, gamers. 
Um, what happened was that uh, I started through Games for Change a partnership with the Tribeca Film Festival. Mm-hmm. So that's another organization that kind of saw the promise of this new medium. And um, it was a, a partnership to host Games for Change. And then me and my partner, Itzik Ben Basat, met with the, the founders of the festival, the film festival, and they said, what else can we do with games? And, you know, we have this new partnership with Madison Square Garden, Tribeca. Obviously, we're looking for things that are going to speak to young audiences and millennials. We're looking for things that are consumer-facing, just like film, you know, the film festival is. And we said, let's do esports. Let's bring... a very big tournament to Madison Square Garden for the first time. Before that, there were smaller tournaments at the theater, the Madison, not at the arena, and uh, they were not necessarily very successful. And um, we said, look, we want to start with the best. So we'll go to the most popular one, which is League of Legends. And together with the team at Tribeca, we basically had this mission to convince League of Legends to consider one of the most expensive arenas in the world. And uh, until then, they w- worked mostly on the West Coast. And they did an, a very successful L.A. Stapers show. And we f- finally convinced them to bring one of the main events of that season. Uh, that was 2015. And it sold out in 36 hours. Wow. And talking about disruption, obviously, that was another case where People at Madison Square Garden said, look, it's interesting. How can we sell tickets? It will take a month to fill in the arena. And it took basically a day and a half. <laughs> All right. Speaking of games, let's play a game. Rapid fire round. I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay. What food have you never eaten? Cockroaches. <laughs> Aren't you glad? <laughs> I mean, some people eat it. <laughs> Do you find your current work challenging? Uh, yes. What's one book you read at a young age that you still think about? 1984. How old were you? Probably 10, 11. That's young to be reading 1984. I read a lot. Which of your family members do you think of when you hear the word disruptor? My father. Why? So he started the um, VC industry in Israel. He was one of the first uh, VCs in the 80s. And people don't remember, but before that, people mainly donated to Israel. And he was one of those that convinced a lot of rich individuals that there could be a real investment with return. And that started the whole IT industry in the 80s. Wow. <laughs> That's something to be proud of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, this is a gimme. Do you speak a language other than English? If yes, how do you say disruption? Oh, my God. I, <laughs> I can say it in Hebrew, I guess. Okay. Um, so you speak Hebrew and Arabic? Uh, Hebrew and Arabic and English. Um, I'm trying to think if there is actually a word in Hebrew for that. Um, maybe it's amtsatiyut. Amtsatiyut. Probably there's something that... The, the Hebrew Academy. So, so Hebrew is a very interesting case of disruption because you have a language that basically was, wasn't spoken for 2,000 years. Mm. And every time they need to invent new words to, you know, align with, with English. Mm. So something like disruption comes and they need to actually invent 
the word for it. So what word did you use that you said I, would I approximate? I use things that are more in the innovation side. Mm, mm-hmm. Invention, innovation. And uh, how did you spell the word that you used? In English? Yeah. It's a very long one. Oh, it is? Okay. Amtsatiyut. Amtsatiyut? Amtsatiyut. Okay, I can't pronounce it. All right. How will you disrupt yourself in 2017? The, the thing that I'm trying to figure out now, and that's, that's pretty new to me, is uh, how to do, like how far I can go with multiple projects. So, so in the past, it was all about super focus, laser focus on one thing and one thing only. And now I'm f- I find myself, myself with uh, five email addresses, doing projects for five different uh, companies in five different sectors. You know, some of them are mobile, some of them are commercial, some of them are not commercial. Some of them has, have to do with eSports, some of them not. And um, it's, it's, it's thrilling, but it's, uh, it's challenging, it's confusing at times. And uh, it's like I wear many hats. And, um, you know, sometimes I come to a meeting and I speak about different things and people are interested and at the end they're kind of, I see that they're overwhelmed and I need to make order and like, mm-hmm. okay, there's one bucket, you, mm-hmm. you do this, one bucket. So if I understand then correctly, you're saying you've got all these different projects, you've got time is a constraint. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out So your, your personal disruption, so the third accelerant of personal disruption is to embrace your constraints. So you would figure out how to turn this limited time into some type of tool of creation, and what will that look like? Yeah, and, and basically see how much attention I can give to each one of them, how they can all fit together. Mm-hmm. How can I start actually leverage one against the other, which is already happening. You know, I, I, I'm doing eSports at once, so actually I'm... suddenly presenting that idea to a whole different company that never considered it so you know start to kind mm, of finding the connections create between. the connections and um, you know I, I see how it's it's also emerging from parts to actually something that is bigger than the sum of all parts because um, it allows me to look at different sectors it allows me to create tons of Uh, relationships and um, I can see one direction for example that it turns into a fund hmm. that uh, invests in cutting-edge ventures you know that and leverages all those relationships and expertise um, coming from the you know the, the real DNA of knowing how to make products like this So do you want to go on record? Is that something you're going to do? So here's, here's what I'm asking. Okay. Um, six to nine months from now, I'm going to want to call you on the phone and ask you how you did with disrupting yourself. So I'm hoping there's something concrete that you would like to... Right now, it's, it's really about projects. I want to see in six to nine months that the agency power play um, has become a thing in itself, that it has such value... Um, because we created that expertise, because we uh, had those top-tier clients, because we had uh, established those relationships, that it's, it, it became a known, just like Games for Change came, became a known thing. That's great. Asi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm really excited for people to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much. It was fun.
Ossie Barak is a disruptor on so many levels, and it began as a child, which goes to my first takeaway. If you're wondering what your distinctive strengths are, what makes you unique, look to your childhood. Just like Susan Cain did in episode 14, she knew what she wanted to do when she grew up. So did Ossie. Importantly, what he did well surprised, even embarrassed his parents. Ossie was not only an artist, he drew characters involved in conflict of the war. He was six years old. If you still don't know what you want to be when you grow up, look for clues and what made you odd as a child. The second thing Ossie reminds us of is the importance of taking on market risk rather than competitive risk. For example, Ossie doubled down on learning Arabic when his classmates were focused on science. When he left the military, most of his unit went into analytical professions, the law, business, startups. Ossie chose art. He took on a really big problem, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with a video game. To be successful, play where no one wants to or has thought of playing. Be willing to fail there, too. Ozzy's experience also underscores the importance of being driven by discovery. After playing Peacemaker, remember how one man said to Ozzy, I learned more about the conflict in a few hours than I have watching the news for a few months. Action feedback is the key to learning, especially in a complex situation. You act, you get feedback, you learn how stakeholders feel and think. When was the last time you got feedback from your stakeholders? Not fishing for a compliment feedback, but how am I doing? What will make this idea? What will make me better? If you want to drive innovation inside your organization, play to your strengths like Ozzy did with art. What's something you love to do as a child? That's a good place to start. Be willing to play where others don't want to play. Then get out and discover. Make yourself vulnerable to the messiness of a response. If you enjoy the Disrupt Yourself podcast, will you let iTunes know? There's a link in the show notes. If you'd like transcripts of these interviews, they're available to our newsletter subscribers. Thank you to Matt Shanley for listening. About episode 13 with Gary Ridge, WD40 CEO, Matt says, I enjoyed the way he talked about fostering growth with his employees. He seemed genuinely proud of them, not just of the company. He is Matt. I'm really glad that came through. Finally, thank you to Ossie Barak for being our guest, to producer David Klatt, editor Heather Hunt, and art director Brandon Jamison. I'm Whitney Johnson, and this is Disrupt Yourself. <laughs>